Some Observations on the Organization of Personality Part 2 by Carl R. Rogers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Om123 Some Observations on the Organization of Personality Part 2 by Carl R. Rogers, 1947 Address of the Retiring President of the American Psychological Association, the September 1947 Annual Meeting. First published in American Psychologist, Volume 2, pages 358 to 368. The Relation of Perception of the Self to Adjustment Initially, we are oriented by background of both lay and psychological thinking to regard the outcome of successful therapy as the solution of problems. If a person had a marital problem, a vocational problem, a problem of educational adjustment, the obvious purpose of counseling or therapy was to solve that problem. But as we observe and study the recorded accounts of the conclusion of therapy, it is clear that the most characteristic outcome is not necessarily solution of problems, but a freedom from tension, a different feeling about and perception of self. Perhaps something of this outcome may be conveyed by some illustrations. Several statements taken from the final interview of a twenty-year-old young woman, Miss Meir, give indications of the characteristic attitude towards self, and the sense of freedom which appears to accompany it. I have always tried to be what the others thought I should be, but now I am wondering whether I should not just see that I am what I am. Well, I have just noticed such a difference. I find that when I feel things, even when I feel hate, I don't care, I don't mind. I feel more free somehow. I don't feel guilty about things. You know, it's suddenly as though a big cloud has been lifted off. I feel so much more content. Note, in these statements, the willingness to perceive herself as she is, to accept herself realistically, to perceive and accept her bad attitudes as well as good ones. This realism seems to be accompanied by a sense of freedom and contentment. Miss Veep, whose attitudes were quoted earlier, wrote out her own feelings about counseling some six weeks after the interviews were over, and gave the statement to her counselor. She begins, the happiest outcome therapy has been a new feeling about myself. As I think of it, it might be the only outcome. Certainly, it is basic to all the changes in my behavior that have resulted. In discussing her experience in therapy, she states, I was coming to see myself as a whole. I began to realize that I am one person. This was an important insight to me. I saw that the former good academic achievement, job success, Ease in social situations and the present withdrawal, dejection, apathy and failure were all adaptive behavior performed by me. This meant that I had to reorganize my feelings about myself, no longer holding to unrealistic notion that the very good adjustment was the expression of the real me, that this neurotic behavior was not. I came to feel that I am the same person sometimes functioning maturely and sometimes assuming a neurotic role in the face of what I had conceived as insurmountable problems. 
the acceptance of myself as one person gave me strength in the process of reorganization. Now I had a substratum, a core of unity on which to work. As she continues her discussion, there are such statements as, I am getting more happiness in being myself. I approve of myself more, and I have so much less anxiety. As in the previous example, the outstanding aspects appear to be the realization that all of our behavior belonged to her, that she could accept both the good and bad features about herself, and that doing so gave her a release from anxiety and a feeling of solid happiness. In both instances, there is only incidental reference to the serious problems which had been initially discussed. Since Miss Muir is undoubtedly above average intelligence and Miss V is a person with some psychological training, it may appear that such results are found only with a sophisticated individual. To counteract this opinion, a quotation may be given from a statement written by a veteran of limited ability and education who had just completed counseling and was asked to write whatever reactions he had to the experience. He says, As for the consoling, I have had I can say this, it really makes a man strip his own mind bare, and when he does, he knows then what he really is, and what he can do. Or at least thinks he knows himself pretty well. As for myself, I know that my ideas were a little too big for what I really am. But now I realize one must try start out at his own level. Now after four visits, I have a much clearer picture of myself and my future. It makes me feel a little depressed and disappointed, but on the other hand, it has taken me out of the dark. The load seems a lot lighter now. That is, I can see my way now. I know what I want to do. I know about what I can do. So now that I can see my goal, I'll be able to work a whole lot easier at my own level. Although the expression is much simpler one, notes again, the same two elements the acceptance of self as it is, and a feeling of easiness, of lighted burden, which accompanies it. As we examine many individual case records and case recordings, it appears to be possible to bring together the findings in regard to successful therapy by stating another hypothesis in regard to that portion of the perceptual field which we call the self. It would appear that, when all of the ways in which the individual perceives himself, all perceptions of the qualities, abilities, impulses, and attitudes of the person, and all perceptions of himself in relation to others, are accepted in the organized conscious concept of the self, that this achievement is accompanied by feelings of comfort and freedom from tension, which are experienced as psychological adjustment. This hypothesis would seem to account for the observed fact that the comfortable perception of self which is achieved is sometimes more positive than before, sometimes more negative. When the individual permits all his perceptions of himself to be organized into one pattern, the picture is sometimes more flattering than he has held in the past, sometimes less flattering. It is always more comfortable. It may be pointed out also that this tentative hypothesis supplies an operational type of definition based on the client's internal frame of reference for such hitherto vague terms as adjustment, integration, and acceptance of self. They are defined in terms of perception, in a way which it should be possible to prove or disprove. When all of the organic perceptual experiences, 
the experiencing of attitudes, impulses, abilities, and disabilities, the experience of others and of reality. When all of these perceptions are freely assimilated into an organized and consistent system available to consciousness, then psychological adjustment or integration might be said to exist. The definition of adjustment is thus made an internal affair rather than dependent upon an external reality. Something of what is meant by this acceptance and assimilation of perceptions about the self may be illustrated from the case of Miss Nan, a student. Like many other clients, she gives evidence of having experienced attitudes and feelings which are defensively denied because they are not consistent with the concept or picture she holds of herself. The way in which they are first fully admitted into consciousness and then organized into a unified system may be shown by excerpts from the recorded interviews. She has spoken of the difficulties she has had in bringing herself to write papers for her university courses. I just thought of something else which perhaps hinders me, and that is that again it's two different feelings. When I have to sit down and do a paper, though I have a lot of ideas, underneath I think I always have the feeling that I just can't do it. I have this feeling of being terrifically confident that I can do something, without being willing to put the work into it. At other times I am practically afraid of what I have to do. Note that the conscious self has been organized as having a lot of ideas, being terrifically confident, but that underneath, in other words, not freely admitted into consciousness, has been the experience of feeling I just can't do it. She continues, I am trying to work through this funny relationship between this terrible confidence and then this almost fear of doing anything. And I think the kind of feeling that I can really do things is part of an illusion I have about myself of being in my imagination sure that it will be something good and very good and all that. But whenever I get down to the actual task of getting started, it's a terrible feeling of, well, incapacity, that I won't get it done either the way I want to do it or even not being sure how I want to do it. Again, the picture of herself which is present in consciousness is that of a person who is very good, but this picture is entirely out of line with the actual organic experience in the situation. Later in the same interview she expresses very well the fact that her perceptions are not all organized into one consistent conscious self. I am not sure about what kind of a person I am. Well, I realize that all of these are a part of me but I am not quite sure of how to make all these things fall in line. In the next interview, we have an excellent opportunity to observe the organization of both of these conflicting perceptions into one pattern, with a resultant sense of freedom from tension, which has been described above. It's very funny, even as I sit here I realize that I have more confidence in myself, in the sense that when I used to approach new situations, I would have two very funny things operating at the same time. I had a fantasy that I could do anything, which was a fantasy which covered over all these other feelings that I really couldn't do it, or couldn't do it as well as I wanted to. And it's as if now those two things have merged together, and it is more real that the situation isn't either testing myself or proving something to myself or anyone else. It's just in terms of doing it. And I think I have done away both with that fantasy and that fear. So I think I can go ahead 
and approached things, well, just sensibly. No longer it is necessary for his client to cover over experiences. Instead, the picture of herself as very able and the experienced feeling of complete inability have now been brought together into one integrated pattern of self as a person with real but imperfect abilities. Once the self is thus accepted, the inner energies making for self-actualization are released, and she attacks her life problems more efficiently. Observing this type of material frequently in counseling experience would lead to a tentative hypothesis of maladjustment, which, like the other hypothesis suggested, focuses on the perception of self. It might be proposed that the tensions called psychological maladjustment exist when the organized concept of self conscious or available to conscious awareness is not in accord with the perceptions actually experienced. This discrepancy between the concept of self and the actual perceptions seems to be explicable only in terms of the fact that the self-concept resists assimilating itself any percept which is inconsistent with its present organization. The feeling that she may not have the ability to do a paper is inconsistent with Miss Name's conscious picture of herself as a very able and confident person, and hence, though fleetingly perceived, is denied organization as a part of herself, until this comes about in therapy. The Conditions of Change of Self-Perception If the way in which the self is perceived has as close and significant a relationship to behavior as has been suggested, then the manner in which this perception may be altered becomes a question of importance. If a reorganization of self-perceptions bring a change in behavior, if adjustment and maladjustment depend on the congruence between perceptions as experienced and the self as perceived, then the factors which permit a reorganization of the perception of self are significant. Our observations of psychotherapeutic experience would seem to indicate that absence of any treat to the self-concept is an important item in the problem. Normally, the self resists incorporating into self those experiences which are inconsistent with the functioning of self. But a point overlooked by Lecky and others is that, when the self is free from any treat of attack or likelihood of attack, then it is possible for the self to consider these hitherto rejected perceptions to make new differentiations and to reintegrate the self in such a way as to include them. An illustration from the case of Miss Veeb may serve to clarify this point. In her statement written six weeks after the conclusion of counseling, Miss Veeb thus describes the way in which unacceptable percepts become incorporated into the self. She writes, In the earlier interviews, I kept saying such things as, I am not acting like myself. I never acted this way before. What I meant was that this withdrawn, untidy, and apathetic person was not myself. Then I began to realize that I was the same person, seriously withdrawn, etc. now, as I had been before. That did not happen until after I had talked out my self-rejection, shame, despair, and doubt in the accepting situation of the interview. The counselor was not startled or shocked. I was telling him all these things about myself, which did not fit into my picture of a graduate student, a teacher, a sound person. He responded with complete acceptance and warm interest without heavy emotional overtones. Here was a sane, intelligent person 
wholeheartedly accepting this behavior that seemed so shameful to me. I can remember an organic feeling of relaxation. I did not have to keep up the struggle to cover up and hide this shameful person. Note how clearly one can see here the whole range of denied perceptions of self, and the fact that they could be considered as a part of self only in a social situation which involved no treat to the self, in which another person, the counsellor, becomes almost an alternate self and looks with understanding and acceptance upon these same perceptions. She continues. Retrospectively, it seems to me that what I felt as warm acceptance without emotional overtones was what I needed to work through my difficulties. The counsellor's impersonality with interest allowed me to talk out my feelings. The clarification in the interview situation presented the attitude to me as a thing and such, which I could look at, manipulate, and put in place. In organizing my attitudes, I was beginning to organize me. Here, the nature of exploration of experience, of seeing it as experience and not as a treat to self, enables the client to reorganize her perceptions of self, which, as she says, was also reorganizing me. If we attempt to describe in more conventional psychological terms the nature of the process which culminates in an altered organization and integration of self in the process of therapy, it might run as follows. The individual is continually endeavoring to meet his needs by reacting to the field of experience as he perceives it, and to do that more efficiently by differentiating elements of the field and reintegrating them into new patterns. Reorganization of the field may involve the reorganization of the self as well as of other parts of the field. The self, however, resists reorganization and change. In everyday life, individual adjustment by means of reorganization of the field exclusive of the self is more common and is less threatening to the individual. Consequently, the individual's first mode of adjustment is the reorganization of that part of the field which does not include the self. Client-centered therapy is different from other life situations inasmuch as the therapy stands to remove from the individual's immediate world all those aspects of the field which the individual can reorganize except the self. The therapist, by reacting to the client's feelings and attitudes rather than to the objects of his feelings and attitudes, assists the client in bringing from background into focus his own self, making it easier than ever before for the client to perceive and react to the self. By offering only understanding and no trace of evaluation, the therapist removes himself as an object of attitudes, becoming only an alternate expression of the client's self. The therapist, by providing a consistent atmosphere of permissiveness and understanding, removes whatever treat existed to prevent all perceptions of the self from emerging into figure. Hence, in this situation, all the ways in which the self has been experienced can be viewed openly and organized into a complex unity. It is then this complete absence of any factor which would attack the concept of self, and second, the assistance in focusing upon the perception of self, which seems to permit a more differentiated view of self, and finally the reorganization of self. Relationship to Current Psychological Thinking Up to this point, these remarks have been presented as clinical observations and tentative hypotheses, 
quite apart from any relationship to past or present thinking in the field of psychology. This has been intentional. It is felt that it is the function of the clinician to try to observe with an open-minded attitude the complexity of material which comes to him, to report his observations, and in the light of this to formulate hypotheses and problems which both the clinic and the laboratory may utilize as a basis for study and research. Yet though these are clinical observations and hypotheses, they have, as has doubtless been recognized, a relationship to some of the currents of theoretical and laboratory thinking in psychology. Some of the observations about the self bear a relationship to the thinking of G. H. Mead about the I and the me. The outcome of therapy may be described in Mead's terms as the increasing awareness of the I and the organization of the me's by the I. The importance which has been given in this paper to the self as an organizer of experience and to some extent as an architect of self bears a relationship to the thinking of Alport and others concerning the increased place which we must give to the integrative function of the ego. In the stress which has been given to the present field of experience as the determinant of behavior, the relationship to gestural psychology and to the work of Lewin and his students is obvious. The theories of Engel find some parallel in our observations. His view that the self represents only a small part of the biological organism which has reached symbolic elaboration and that it often attempts the direction of the organism on the basis of unreliable and insufficient information seems to be particularly related to the observations we have made. Like his posthumous book, small in size but large in the significance of its contribution, has brought a new light on the way in which the self operates, and the principle of consistency by which new experiences included in or excluded from the self. Much of his thinking runs parallel to our observations. Snyke and Combs have recently attempted a more radical and more complete emphasis upon the internal world of perception as the basis for all psychology, a statement which has helped to formulate a theory in which our observations feed. It is not only from the realm of theory, but also from the experimental laboratory that one finds confirmation of the line of thinking which has been proposed. Tolman has stretched the need of thinking as a rat if fruitful experimental work is to be done. The work of Sneak indicates that rat behavior may be better predicted by inferring the rat's field of perception than by viewing him as an object. Kress, Kresevsky, showed in a brilliant study some years ago that rat learning can only be understood if we realize that the rat is consistently acting upon one hypothesis after another. Leeper has summarized the evidence from a number of experimental investigations, showing that animal behavior cannot be explained by simple SL mechanisms, but only by recognizing that complex internal processes of perceptual organization intervene between the stimulus and the behavioral response. Thus, there are parallel streams of clinical observation, theoretical thinking, and laboratory experiment, which all point up the fact that for an effective psychology we need a much more complete understanding of the private world of the individual, and need to learn ways of entering and studying that world from within. Implications It would be misleading, however, if I left you with the impression that the hypothesis I have formulated in this paper 
or those springing from the parallel psychological studies I have mentioned, are simply extensions of the mainstream of psychological thinking, additional bricks in the edifice of psychological thought. We have discovered with some surprise that our clinical observations and the tentative hypotheses which seem to grow out of them raise disturbing questions which appear to cast it out on the very foundations of many of our psychological endeavors, particularly in the fields of clinical psychology and personality study. To clarify what is meant, I should like to restate in more logical order the formulations I have given, and to leave you with certain questions and problems which each one seems to raise. If we take first the tentative proposition that the specific determinant of behavior is the perceptual field of the individual, would this not lead, if regarded as a working hypothesis, to a radically different approach in clinical psychology and personality research? It would seem to mean that, instead of elaborate case histories full of information about a person as an object, we would endeavor to develop ways of seeing his situation, his past and himself, as these objects appear to him. We would try to see with him, rather than to evaluate him. It might mean the minimizing of the elaborate psychometric procedures by which we have endeavored to measure or value the individual from our own frame of reference. It might mean the minimizing or discarding of all the vast series of labels which we have painstakingly built up over the years. Paranoid, pre-schizophrenic, compulsive, constricted, terms such as these might become irrelevant because they are all based in thinking which takes an external frame of reference. They are not the ways in which the individual experiences himself. If we consistently studied each individual from the internal frame of reference of that individual, from within his own perceptual field, it seems probable that we should find generalizations which could be made, and principles which are operative. But we may be very sure that they would be of a different order from these externally based judgments about individuals. Let us look at another of the suggested propositions. If we took seriously the hypothesis that integration and adjustment are internal conditions related to the degree of acceptance or non-acceptance of all perceptions, then the degree of organization of these perceptions into one consistent system, this would decidedly affect our clinical procedures. It would seem to imply the abandonment of the notion that adjustment is dependent upon the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the environment and would demand concentration upon these processes which bring about self-integration within the person. It would mean a minimizing or an abandoning of those clinical procedures which utilize the alteration of environmental forces as a method of treatment. It would rely instead upon the fact that the person who is internally unified has the greatest likelihood of meeting environmental problems constructively, either as an individual or in cooperation with others. If we take the remaining proposition that the self, under proper conditions, is capable of reorganizing, to some extent, its own perceptual field, and of thus altering behavior, these two seems to raise disturbing questions. Following the path of this hypothesis would appear to mean a shift in emphasis in psychology from focusing upon the fixity of personality attributes and psychological abilities to the alterability of these same characteristics. It would concentrate upon process rather than upon fixed stages. Whereas psychology has, in personality study, been concerned primarily with the measurement of the fixed qualities of the individual and with his past in order to explain his present, 
the hypothesis here suggested would seem to concern itself much more with the personal world of the present in order to understand the future and in predicting that future would be concerned with the principle by which personality and behavior are altered as well as the extent to which they remain fixed thus we find that a clinical approach client-centered therapy has led us to try to adopt the client's perceptual field as the basis for genuine understanding in trying to enter this internal world of perception not by introspection but by observation and direct inference we find ourselves in a new vantage point for understanding personality dynamics a vantage point which opens up some disturbing vistas we find that behavior seems to be better understood as a reaction to this reality as perceived we discover that the way in which the person sees himself and the perceptions he dares not take as belonging to himself seem to have an important relationship to the inner peace which constitutes adjustment we discover within a person under certain conditions a capacity for the restructuring and the reorganization of self and consequently the reorganization of behavior which has profound social implications we see these observations and the theoretical formulations which they inspire as a fruitful new approach for study and research in various fields of psychology references one alport gordon w the ego in contemporary psychology psychological review year 1943 volume 15 pages 451 to 478 2 angel andras foundations for a science of personality new york commonwealth fund 1941 3 krasevsky i hypothesis in rats psychological review year 1932 volume 39 pages 516 to 532 4 lakey prescott self-consistency a theory of personality new york island press 1945 5 leaper robert the experimental psychologists as reluctant dragons paper presented at a p meeting september 1946 6 levin cott a dynamic theory of personality new york macro hill 1935 7 meet george h mind self and society chicago university of chicago press 1934 8 Rosers Carl R. Significant Aspects of Client Centered Therapy, American Psychologist, 1946, Volume 1, pages 415 to 422. 9. Snyder W. U. Warmed in Non Directive Counseling, Journal of Abnormal Social Psychology, Year 1946, Volume 41, pages 491 to 495. 10. Steve Donald images in which rats take the longer path to food journal of psychology year 1936 volume 1 pages 153 to 166 11 sneak donald and combs arthur w book manuscript loaned to present author in process of publication new york harper and brothers 12 tolman ec the determiners of behavior at a choice point Psychological Review, year 1938, volume 45, 
pages 1 to 41. End of Some Observations on the Organization of Personality, Part 2.